This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Um, so I was so proud of myself. I finally booked this flight to Hawaii for my brother's wedding in June. And my wife just responds. She she wisely asked me to send her a uh, copy of my itinerary. And it looks like I booked my flights backwards. It looks like I am leaving Hawaii on June 2nd and returning to and returning to um and returning to Hawaii on June 6th which is precisely the opposite of what I wanted to do so that's annoying i'm going to have to straighten that out well as mild an inconvenience as that is that is nothing compared to what uh, people are dealing with in eastern europe right now we are seeing a uh, war happen in ukraine russian forces have invaded not just the Donbass region, but uh, they have gone right into Kiev. There are people dead. There are people fleeing their homes. And uh, this doesn't appear to be ending anytime soon. Now, full disclosure, I was one of the people that said I didn't think this was going to happen. I thought this was incredibly unlikely. And uh, I was very, very surprised at Vladimir Putin's action here. So I thought... As we continue to explore this issue of how we got here and where we're going, maybe it makes sense to talk to some people that were actually right about this. One of those people who's been right about this every step of the way is Clint Ehrlich. He's a foreign policy analyst, an attorney, and a former visiting researcher at Moscow's State Institute of International Relations, also becoming a regular on the Tucker Carlson program. Clint, I appreciate you uh, making the time to talk with us. I know you're very much in demand these days, and I know the time is not necessarily the most convenient. It's my my pleasure. I wish that I was here under happier circumstances. As do I. Now, um, let me play for you what uh, President Biden said yesterday as he uh, spelled out the new sanctions that he was leveling at Russia. This was President Biden. Putin is the aggressor. Putin chose this war. And now he and his country will bear the consequences. Today, I'm authorizing additional strong sanctions and new limitations on what can be exported to Russia. This is going to impose severe cost on the Russian economy, both immediately and over time. Um, your reaction, Clint, first of all, is is President Biden right in that Putin is the aggressor here? And um, yeah, well, let's start with that. Uh, was was President Biden correct there? Putin is certainly the, the aggressor. You know, Russia uh, is, is the aggressor under any objective standard. But just because this isn't a, a justified war doesn't mean that it wasn't a predictable war. And so, you know, I, I called this uh, in advance because it was clear that Russia was articulating security interests that could only be uh, achieved through an invasion of Ukraine. And so it, it doesn't mean that we have to absolve uh, Vladimir Putin of fault to recognize that the choices that the United States made in terms of policy, like insisting that Ukraine uh, would become a member of NATO, contributed to this crisis, and that it's possible that with different policies, we could have de-escalated and avoided the slaughter that we're seeing. Now, um, in terms of... Um what the situation on the ground looks like now. What are we seeing? What are the key targets in Ukraine that Russia appears to be targeting? And uh, how bad is the destruction from what you're hearing? You know, the the destruction is, is very widespread. It's hard to, to get uh, exact casualty 
figures because this is such a, a fast-moving conflict. Right now, what the Russians are attempting to do is to seize Kiev. And so just within the, the last hour or so, we've seen images coming out showing Ukrainian forces blowing up the, the bridges around Kiev in a, a last-ditch attempt to try to stop Russian tanks from rolling into the city. The Russians appear to be about four miles now from the center of Kiev. And so this has really been a, a lightning attack by, by Russia. And even though the Ukrainians are, are trying very hard to put up a fight, it looks like they're rapidly losing their capital. Uh, the president uh, basically in instituting these new sanctions indicated that uh, these are some of the toughest sanctions the United States has ever leveled against another country and said that uh, they could get even worse if Russian aggression continues, irrespective of um, what you think of the the conflict with Russia and Ukraine. Do you think these sanctions will be effective in getting Russia to change its behavior? No, these, these sanctions will, will not be effective. And the primary reason for that is that Europe is so reliant on Russian energy that the, the sanctions exclude uh, Russia's energy sector. Uh, and so because of that, that mutual uh, dependence uh, that exists, it's just impossible right now to get the political will behind sanctions that would really be damaging to Russia's economy. And we've, we've already seen the ruble starting to, to rebound. And so any claim that these sanctions are strong enough to deter Russia's conduct uh, is just false. Well, what impact will these sanctions have, either on the United States or Russia, from your perspective? Uh, the, the sanctions are, are going to harm both of our economies. They may contribute to inflation here. They're likely going to contribute to higher gas prices. Uh, in Russia, the ruble, even though it's rebounding, it still is at historically low levels. Uh, I personally know of companies uh, in Russia that have long-term contracts that have been broken off uh, with their uh, European partners. Now, not even in relation to the sanctions package, just in relation to the overall degradation in relations that exist now between Russia uh, and Europe. So the Russian economy uh, is hurting, but Russia has uh, accumulated a massive sovereign wealth fund uh, in order to try to weather the storm. They've been planning ahead for exactly this kind of conflict, uh, and they chose to go forward because they were ready to deal with the economic harm. Now, one of the reasons I thought an invasion was unlikely is because once you had President Biden taking off the table, sending military, uh, sending troops to Ukraine to uh, repel any Russian invasion, it would seem to me that um, NATO membership for Ukraine, which would require under Article 5 a uh, military alliance with all the other NATO countries, that you wouldn't see troops, NATO troops, do anything that American troops weren't willing to do. So it would seem to me like Putin sort of achieved his objective just through this bluff of an invasion and seeing that Americans didn't have the spine to, um, or maybe they had the wisdom, I should say, to put their troops in harm's way. Did Putin really need to invade, given what we were hearing about no troops uh, being sent to Ukraine? You know, Vladimir Putin is a, a very long-term strategic thinker, and so I believe that what's motivating him was not the immediate prospect of NATO membership for Ukraine, but the, the long-term prospect that eventually Ukraine could become a, a NATO member. And in particular, I think his concern was that Ukraine was developing its own homegrown ballistic missile systems that could target Russia's population centers. And so 
from Russia's perspective, if it didn't intervene now before those missile systems were operational, it was no longer going to be able to intervene because Ukraine would have such a strong conventional deterrent that it would no longer be feasible to stage this kind of operation. So I think that Russia saw a narrowing window of opportunity to take actions to permanently stop Ukraine from becoming a NATO member. And they decided to act act preemptively because they thought that the, the national security risks to them of inaction were greater than the risk of staging this kind of invasion. The Biden administration had said repeatedly that um, that an invasion of Ukraine by Russia was imminent. Uh, it looks like they were right. Uh, does the Biden intelligence apparatus get some credit for getting it right this time, in your view? You know, it, it's difficult to say because they, they cried wolf about this so so many times yeah. Uh, that, yeah, eventually they were right. But there were all of the times that they said that invasion was going to happen within 48 hours, for example, and it didn't. My position had been that Russia had mobilized forces and that all we could say was that an invasion could happen at any time. And I think that they, they sort of undercut their, their credibility by saying over and over and over again that an invasion was going to happen within specific windows that, that didn't materialize. So I'd give them a, a solid B. They got the overall gist of Russia's plans correct, but they were overly specific in their predictions, uh, and that may have harmed their credibility along the way. Uh, so what do you think happens now? As somebody that's been right about this and uh, has predicted this right every step of the way, what do you see happening now? I see Russia pursuing regime change uh, in Ukraine. Uh, I don't think that it's their their plan to engage in a a long-term occupation of the country, nor do I think that they really want to uh, annex Ukrainian territory. Uh, Instead, when they talk about what they're branding, a denazification operation, you know, whether you agree with that characterization or not, um, it gives us a a clue to their plans. And so their plan is they want to uh, remove uh, the current government. Uh, They're going to stage essentially tribunals, uh, sort of like uh, we saw after World War II. Uh, They're going to claim that these were uh, essentially neo-Nazis who were uh, committing crimes. Uh, So they'll be putting people on trial and probably executing. By the way, by the way, that is something that I've heard from at least one uh, person that I've had on this program from Donetsk and uh, from a couple of other people I'm in touch with via email who are in the Donbass region. Do we know if that claim of neo-Nazis working in concert with the Ukrainian government is accurate or not, or is that impossible to verify? The claim is accurate. The question is the, the scale, right? So Azov Battalion is an entity. You can look into them. Um, you know, the United States has characterized them as a, a neo-Nazi brigade uh, that is uh, under the, the command of the Ukrainian military. Uh, and so I'm certainly not saying that Ukraine is itself a neo-Nazi state. Uh, it has a, a Jewish president, and so that would sort of be a, a silly characterization. But there, there are elements uh, of Ukrainian society um, especially those associated with the historic leader, Stepan Bandera, uh, who uh, are very sympathetic uh, to the Nazis because of uh, their, their collaboration against the Soviet Union. So I believe that that characterization is accurate. The question is just the scope of the relationship between the Ukrainian government and those neo-Nazi elements. A few months ago, I spoke with General Wesley Clark, the former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, about Russian concerns regarding NATO expansion. Here was my question to General Clark and General Clark's response. Can you understand a little bit of Russia's frustration in seeing NATO expand right up to its border? And can you understand why Russia might be looking to do some saber rattling and blustering in response to that? 
No, it's absolutely not understandable. And I'll tell you why. <clears throat> There's no way in which NATO would ever threaten Russia. NATO cannot attack. NATO has no attack capabilities, never has had. This is maybe Russia trying to make you see their point of view, but their point of view is not defensible. Their point of view is imperialistic, assertive, aggressive, and offensive. Russia has a three-century, four-century-long record of overrunning other people. Russia wants everything. It wants a buffer zone in Eastern Europe. Oh, but it would like more assurance that Germany and France would be friendly. Uh, Russia's insecurities cannot be allowed to create insecurity for the rest of the world. So the fact is, Russia should concentrate on working for the Russian people and not be so concerned about <clears throat> repressing the Belarusian people, which they're doing right now, or threatening the Ukrainian people, or challenging the nationhood of the Baltic states, or threatening the United States if we send destroy a couple of destroyers into the Black Sea. Um, that's not the right role for Russia. It's not understandable, and we should not say we understand. So, Clint, there's a lot of folks in this audience that General Clark was speaking for. They view the United States and NATO as the good guys, and they don't believe that Vladimir Putin genuinely finds NATO to be threatening because in the eyes of many of our listeners, they view NATO, just as General Clark seems to, as an entity that would never do anything that's hostile. From your perspective, as somebody that understands both American and Russian mindsets on this issue, do, did Putin have a legitimate beef about being concerned about uh, NATO aggression? Or is General Clark right that Putin's beef is totally illegitimate? I think they're they're both right. I think that General Clark is right that NATO does not intend to attack Russia, but I think that uh, he overestimates the extent to which uh, the Russians can reasonably be expected to share that belief. NATO is fundamentally an anti-Russian military bloc. Uh, when he says that it has no offensive capabilities, uh, he, he's respectfully overlooking uh, the bombing operations that it carried out over the, the former uh, Yugoslavia, which Russia uh, considers severe violations of, uh, of international law uh, and which it blames for the deaths of, of numerous civilians. In uh, putting aside NATO's intentions, the facts are that if NATO expands uh, to Russia's borders, well, it's already on their borders, but if it expands even closer to Moscow by, for example, incorporating Ukraine, then NATO would have the ability to place missiles within five minutes uh, from the capital. And so just from a, a nuclear strategy perspective, if you only have five minutes to respond to a potential nuclear attack, it forces you to change the posture uh, of your own weapon systems. You have to uh, consider a launch on warning scenario where you have to be ready to launch your nukes even before you've been hit uh, because it's not clear that you would have a, uh, a second strike capability. Uh, and so irrespective of intentions, you know, you, you may have the, the best of intentions. The strategic balance is such that the, the Russians are, are fearful. And certainly when you when you hear rhetoric uh, like General Clark gave uh, about Russia's history uh, of invading uh, its neighbors, I think it's important to balance that out with understanding the Russians' own experience of being uh, invaded, being invaded by uh, Napoleon being invaded by Hitler, 
Uh, and so their desire to have a, a buffer is based in part on their geography. They don't have any natural borders uh, like we do. We have this, you know, these oceans that keep our enemies uh, away, uh, whereas Russia is stuck with, with planes. And so a buffer is really all that they have uh, in order to defend themselves. So I, I understand where General Clark is coming from, and I understand people who say that, look, NATO is uh, an alliance that uh, has positive uh, intentions, but I would urge them to try to see things from the, the Russian perspective because the Russians are being very sincere about their fears. I've talked to high-level decision makers within Russia's government, and I can assure you that their fear of NATO is entirely authentic. Mm. And with people just tuning in, we're talking with Clint Ehrlich. He's an attorney and a foreign policy analyst and a former visiting researcher at Moscow State Institute of International Relations. Clint, um, you said that you predicted Russians, the Russians would pursue a policy of regime change in Ukraine. I'm assuming that means uh, Zelensky and the other high-level members of the government being replaced by government officials that are much more friendly to Russia and Putin. But what do you think Ukraine as a country will look like after that? Will it simply no longer include the Donbass region, or is it likely to shrink even further than that? I think that what Russia is going to try to do is to decrease the power of Ukraine's central government, because they're aware that even after they pursue regime change, there's always the, the possibility uh, of a new uh, hostile government uh, coming to power in Ukraine. And so the Russians' long-term goal is to uh, minimize uh, that risk by making Ukraine something more like a, a federation. Uh, and so it's possible uh, that the, the, um, the Donetsk and Lugansk uh, People's Republics uh, could be incorporated uh, into that federation as semi-autonomous republics, or it could be possible that they would be kept uh, as entirely separate nation states. Either way, the goal would be to try to uh, reduce the power of Ukraine's central government so that it would pose less of a threat to Russia in the future. And um, l- let me play for you what President Biden said yesterday about uh, Vladimir Putin's intentions and what his goals are in this whole thing. He has much larger ambitions in Ukraine. He wants to, in fact, reestablish the former Soviet Union. That's what this is about. In your view, is the president right there? Um, I think that's an overstatement. Russia already has a a union state uh, with Belarus that has certain characteristics uh, that are reminiscent uh, of the Soviet Union. Uh, And it's possible that in the future they would like to incorporate Ukraine into that same uh, union state. But I don't believe that there's any uh, appetite uh, in Russia to expand uh, into states beyond that. And so, for example, I I certainly don't believe that Russia wants to reclaim territories like the the Baltic states that were part of the Soviet Union and, and, and that are now part of NATO. Uh, That, to me, is is simply not plausible. Understanding that uh, Russia and Putin are the aggressors here and further understanding that sanctions are likely to be ineffective at curbing further aggression, what should the United States have done and what should the United States do going forward? What the United States should have done was to take the the prospect of Ukraine being uh, in NATO off of the table. And that didn't necessarily require that we agree to the Russians' demands entirely. What the Russians wanted was a a binding treaty uh, that said that Ukraine would never become a part of NATO. Instead, all that we had to do to de-escalate the situation was to withdraw the declaration that NATO made in 2008 that Ukraine was going to become a member and to instead have its its status be up in the air. That would have been a very effective immediate step. Now it's too late 
for that. Now the war started. And so the question is, what do we do in order to prevent that war from spilling over into other states? And so I don't support uh, us intervening in Ukraine itself, but I believe that it's appropriate for us to bolster our NATO allies uh, and to draw a line in the sand and to tell Russia, uh, if this conflict spills into any of those other states, then Article 5 will be triggered and we will fight. And um, you think the likelihood of that occurring is what? I think that the likelihood of that that spillover uh, is is de minimis if we're clear with Russia uh, that we uh, intend uh, to defend those states. And we need to be very clear uh, in particular that if there are declarations of, of separatist uh, regions, so for example, if in Estonia there are, uh, are Russians there uh, who say uh, that they're appealing for help from Russia, we have to make it clear that there's no excuses that we're going to accept uh, for any sort of Russian intervention on the territory of any country that is a NATO member. And if we do that, I'm very confident that Russia will not uh, be the aggressor in those states. Mm. Uh, it's very interesting. You know, one of the things that's been frustrating to me is the media coverage and the media analysis of this situation. If you're somebody that uh, that advocates detente with Russia and not uh, figuring out the most aggressive stance possible that the United States can take with the Russian government, you're basically labeled either an appeaser or a Russian stooge. Have you found that in your analysis of the media coverage over the last 24 hours? I've personally experienced that a lot. I, I can't tell you how many times I've been accused of being on the, the Kremlin's payroll somehow, of being a, a useful idiot for the regime. And it's really a shame because if we're going to try to de-escalate the situation, if we're going to try to avoid, frankly, the potential for a, a world war, we need to see the world through Russia's eyes. And that's really a, a universal mm. principle. It's not just true for Russia. It's true for any adversary. Uh, but unfortunately, that kind of jingoistic rhetoric is becoming all too common here in America. That is uh, absolutely for sure. Uh, Clint Ehrlich, I very much appreciate the time this morning. I, uh, I'm sorry we're talking under these circumstances, but I'll look forward to our next conversation. Thanks for having me on.